BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, good morning. Welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you are here with us. Today is January 28th, 2021. And so glad that you are here on National Blueberry Pancake Day. You didn't know it. It's not just any pancake, it is blueberry pancake. Now, the early pancakes consisted mostly of flour and milk, and most were more like biscuits, but later eggs, milk, and a leavening agent such as baking powder and fat were added, creating the fluffier, lighter pancake that we now know today. Mwah! Ah, I love me some uh, blueberry pancakes. In fact, I actually brought some blueberries here this morning. Uh, what do you think? Do you love your blueberry pancakes? I mean, do you want something else? Maybe raspberries, maybe chocolate, maybe Nutella. Uh, I can't say enough. Uh, I'm a big fan of both pancakes and blueberries. So uh, I'll be munching on these throughout the show and glad that you're here with us. So I want to bring in some viewer feedback. We love hearing from you on this program. Yesterday, I put out the question on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Carrie Sheffield. And I asked, when will the government finally allow small businesses to open? We had the House Small Business Ranking member, Congressman Luke Meyer, join us yesterday. And you all had some comments in response to this thing, this question about small businesses. Joshua Piquet says they opened everything right after Biden was certified. They kept everything closed down at the expense of Americans in an election year. But now that their guy is in, they can open everything up and pose as the saviors to bad it's backfiring. The, oh, too bad. <laughs> it's backfiring. The stock market is still crashing. So Joshua is I've, I've heard lots of people say something similar to this effect that they think that the timing here is politically motivated, not just of the small businesses, but also the schools and also uh, just, you know, every, everyday life. Uh, they say that uh, the Democrats here had a hand in it. Uh, another comment here, the other Michael Moore, so not to be confused with the filmmaker, the other Michael Moore says small businesses are incompatible with socialism. Very interesting point there with Michael Moore because the other Michael Moore, uh, this question of economic liberty and the freedom just they go hand in hand when you're talking about civil liberties and economic liberties. You can't have one without the other. So he's making a very important point here that when you have socialism, this is where the government is controlling things, whether that's the means of production. And that's exactly what's happening here. The government is shutting down the means of production. So you can either take it through taxes uh, or you can shut it down through a mandate. Either way, it's another form of socialism here is, is what he's saying there. I want to move to another topic here, and it's a pretty incredible headline. I, 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 my, my child dropped to the floor because you would have thought that the Biden family would have learned its lesson about corruption. But no, this is fresh material from the Joe Biden family, specifically Joe Biden's brother. Now, Joe Biden's brother thought it was smart. He thought it was brilliant. Don't know what was going through his head, but he purchased an advertisement on Inauguration Day on the 20th of January. It was 
He is a, Frank Biden is his name, and Frank Biden is a non-attorney senior advisor for the Berman Law Group. The firm is based in Boca Raton, Florida, and its ad featuring Frank Biden was printed in the January 20th edition of the Daily Business Review, which is also based in Florida. The ad focuses on a lawsuit the firm is leading against a group of Florida sugarcane companies. It features a photo of Frank Biden, along with quotes regarding his relationship with the incoming president and the family name. In an email to CNBC, Frank Biden said he has not used his brother's name to gain clients. Maybe just his photo. Maybe it's not the name. Maybe it's just he's such a gorgeous model. That's what it is. Is that what it is? His, his attractiveness is, is attracting the new clients here. Uh, it just it beggars the imagination. Uh, and you would have thought that with all of the controversy around Hunter Biden, our founder, John Solomon, has done just an incredible job of reporting the corruption and the links that are here between the Hunter Biden machine and uh, just shady ties in Ukraine and China and elsewhere. And you have another member of the Biden family who appears to be cashing in. And also Frank Biden, Joe Biden's brother, has apparently his own track record with China and profiting off of China. We'll see if the Biden administration has any response to this, whether they're going to crack down on the president's brother using the Biden name to profit uh, and to make money at this law firm. We'll see what else might be coming down the pike. I also want to point out what's happening in San Francisco. So we all know San Francisco, the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, is very liberal. Well, this is their latest. They are planning to strip the names of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln from school names. This is going to be other names as well, including California Senator Dianne Feinstein, because she helped with the passage of former President Trump's Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And they these names are going to be removed from 44 San Francisco public schools, a move that has stirred the debate on Wednesday on whether the famously liberal city has taken the national reckoning on America's racist past too far. This is obviously a, a big issue here for folks across the divide here, the political divide, whether or not this is something that is wise, whether a country, uh, a civilization, Western civilization, can survive, whether the fact that the great men and women who helped to build this country, uh, whether we should be ashamed of them, whether we should pretend that they don't exist, whether we should cancel them, uh, whether this is basically the new form of social media science uh, silencing, but it's happening on a public building, buildings that are funded by taxpayers. Uh, When you are stripping off the name of Abraham Lincoln, you really have to think, hard about whether you're going too far. Abraham Lincoln, the man who gave his life to preserve the union, the man who gave his life to free slaves in this country. You really got to ask yourselves a lot of questions. Same thing with George Washington, the man, the public servant who dedicated his life to freeing the American people from the British crown, from a tyranny that had no representation, the taxation without representation. And yes, we did not allow for representation for all all people. I couldn't vote under George Washington's America as a woman, but the truth is, What he did was unheard of. It was unprecedented to have this rebel country, this rebel breakaway from such a powerful crown. Uh, What he did was incredible for our country. Um, And it's it's just San Francisco really doesn't have anything to offer instead. Lastly, I want to point out uh, something here from Senator Bernie Sanders. We all saw the viral moment where he was sitting with his mittens and he was sitting there at the inauguration there 
It turns out that the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign has sold $1.8 million worth of merchandise featuring this item. His campaign just announced it'll go to Vermont charities like Mills on Wheels. And the commenter here, Rebecca Heinrichs, responds and says, capitalism is good, Senator Sanders. So it turns out the senator does believe in selling items uh, only when it benefits him and his interests and what he's trying to do. It's going to charity. It's a good cause. But this is private money, private donations, private sales going to these causes. All right. We'll be right back with Nick Balassi. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad you're here with us. Let's check in with Nick Balassi. He's our senior correspondent with Just the News. Good morning, Nick. Morning, Carrie. So let's talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill right now. We've been talking a lot about this idea of the filibuster. So the filibuster says that in the Senate, you have to have 60 senators who come on board. That means there's got to be at least 10 Republicans who cross over to get something passed in the Senate when it comes to most bills. Uh, in the past, there have been some issues where there was, for example, Republicans broke the filibuster when it came to Supreme Court justices. But there's another trick in the book, another bag of tricks that both Republicans and Democrats have used. And this is called reconciliation. And Senator Chuck Schumer, who leads the Democrats over on the Senate side, he says that Democrats are ready to use reconciliation to pass the COVID-19 relief with an uneasy truce in hand between Senate leaders on the filibuster. Schumer said the Democrats are ready to pursue big, bold, strong action and pass a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. And he informed his caucus that they should be prepared to use reconciliation as soon as next week to pass legislation. So here's my big question. What is reconciliation and how are they going to get around the filibuster? What is the filibuster used for? Because we, uh, so many conservatives were saying, oh, the filibuster is the last great hope here to stop the liberal onslaught. But it looks like reconciliation could be a way to just get around it. That's right. Bernie Sanders, the incoming chair of the budget committee, he's talking about how they could use reconciliation on any bill that impacts the federal budget. So that's what we see happening. It's just a tool where they can actually use a simple majority to get these bills passed. So they may do that, like you said, the coronavirus relief pact considered. Schumer's actually opened the door to, to using it on climate legislation or infrastructure as well. So we could see them try to push major bills in the Democrat Senate using reconciliation as a way on the filibuster because there are some moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin and who have said don't support getting rid of the filibuster. But that doesn't mean the Democrats can't get their agenda. Uh, it's still using reconciliation. So I want to ask, though, so reconciliation, what exactly is it? Is it a tool in the rules kit? What exactly does that word, what, what does it mean, reconciliation? It sounds like such a beltway word. It is. Soon it will be in the mainstream because we're hearing a lot of Democrats talking about it already. It's a legislative rule that starts in the committee and then they can on certain bills. A lot of in house. If, if you go on our website, just the news.com, we have a lot of reporting on the actual rules of how they maneuver 
these le- the legislation with reconciliation. Essentially, if a bill impacts the federal budget, it can apply to reconciliation, and then they only need votes in the chamber to get it to final passage. Whereas if you're you're subject to the filibuster with your bill, you got to pass the threshold the bill to move forward. Okay, Nick, uh, Nick, I'm going to stop you for a second because we're having a hard time uh, hearing you. You're cutting out. I think we're going to hang up real quick and trial dialing you on your phone so we can hopefully get a better signal because we're getting almost every other word. Uh, so we'll, we'll do that real fast. But in the meantime, I, I just want to put a headline up while we get Nick back on the phone uh, about his latest looking at what a GOP lawmaker has called legitimate conversations taking place about taxing the amount of miles that you drive. Tom Reed, a Republican from New York, says that there's an appetite on the left for the fair share argument and raising revenue. So I think that's going to be part of the conversation. He said this during a conversation organized by the Economic Club of Washington. He says the gas tax, the gas tax, I still don't see a gas tax increase on the horizon. Maybe an inflationary rise there. That could be something that maybe gets folks together. But there's also other revenue increases that are out there. So this is something this taxation on the amount of miles that you drive. This is something that the incoming transportation secretary says that he wants to do. Mr. Buttigieg, the former mayor uh, of a mid-sized town in Indiana, wants to impose a taxation on the number of miles you drive. This on top of also banning fracking, new leases on federal lands, new regulatory rules and new restrictions on climate change and gas and also the emissions, uh, everything that Joe Biden promised during the campaign. He's he's really trying his hardest to do it. And so you and I, folks who are driving, uh, people who are more likely to have to drive and have to have a car, we're more likely to be in a red state. Hmm. How about that? Uh, not surprising because folks are more dense and more likely to have public transportation even available and working for them. Uh, it's, it's something that certainly is going to be, uh, you know, not equal uh, taxation here when we're talking about how it impacts people. It's going Im- to impact people who are in a red state more than it impacts someone who's in a blue state in terms of their personal life, in terms of their everyday life, and how often they use a car, how often they use uh, public transport. Um, another issue that Nick is uh, looking at, and hopefully we'll get Nick on the phone shortly, um, is from Bill Gates. So Bill Gates, who is the founder of Microsoft. He says that the COVID vaccination passports could help open up our economy faster. He says that this question of a vaccine passport is something that would make things be more fluid because you'd have more people who are uh, able to prove that they indeed get a, got a vaccination. And we have Nick joining me back. Hey, Nick, sorry about that. So Nick, uh, what what can you tell us about this vaccination passport? What is Bill Gates proposing here? Is he wanting this to be mandated? Are we going to be required to have a vaccine passport? All oh, right, uh, we uh, we lost him, but we'll get him in just a little bit. But uh, according to Nick's reporting, Microsoft, Salesforce, 
Oracle and the Mayo Clinic are reportedly working on the development of this digital COVID vaccination passport. Uh, again, this is a, a big red flag for folks who are concerned about questions of civil liberties, because if we're saying that you have to have this vaccination passport in order to go about your daily life, uh, is this going to be another mandate that uh, people are going to have to live with? Uh, is this going to be the new normal? Is this going to be the new normal that uh, this type of uh, mandate um, is going to be imposed on people? It, it's a, it's, it's going to raise a lot of red flags. I can't imagine that Senator Rand Paul would uh, in any way uh, come on board for this. But again, the Republicans are in the minority here. Um, and as Nick was talking about, uh, they've got the reconciliation process. Nick, uh, I want to ask you, from what you heard about Bill Gates, is this looking to be a mandate? Are they looking to have this vaccine passport to be something that's required? That's a good question. I don't think they've gotten that far yet. So they have the uh, major tech companies like Microsoft, Oracle, they're involved in developing this digital passport, this uh, vaccine passport, or as the World Health Organization calls it, an immunity passport. And what Bill Gates is saying so far is that he thinks it's a good idea because it could help the U.S. economy and uh, economies around the globe open up faster as a result of the pandemic. They could open up their economies quicker because during international travel, they would have this passport as an ability to show that they've been vaccinated and it would just improve the overall situation in terms of, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic. But at the same time, there are privacy concerns, right? I mean, and he acknowledged this with uh, enforcing some sort of vaccination passport, which uh, he was alluding to a requirement, you know, to show it right. uh, as, a, as a means to travel. But this goes hand in hand with right. what the U.S. Well, Nick, we got to leave it right there. Thanks so much. We'll have you back soon. Appreciate it. All right. We'll be right back, folks. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and I'm glad that you're here with us. Let's talk about masks, one of your favorite topics, I have no doubt. Let's take a listen here to a report from CNBC on masks. Virginia Tech researchers found that doubling up these cloth masks increases the efficacy from 50 to 75 percent. All right. Uh, bringing me in is someone named Justin Hart, friend of the show. He's founder of Rational Ground, and he's a data expert. He has a lot to say about this. He tweeted out about this CNBC report, and he says, we've lost our ever loving minds. He says this double mask versus a triple mask, the efficiency 75% versus 90%. He says, hold your horses, because he looked at mask mandates in Florida. So in Florida, he tweeted out, uh, and his his organization has looked at counties in Florida that had mask mandates and no mask mandates. And it turns out the three counties where the mask mandates were removed had a lower case rate of coronavirus. 
That means there were lower daily new cases per one million people in these Florida counties where there was no mask mandate. Justin, what's going on here? Look, let's review a little history. Uh, In March and April, the government created a massive panic among the population, and they needed some means for people to feel like they were in control. And so they reversed what was a decades-old policy and understanding that public masking was a really futile effort. Uh, And so everyone masked up, and more importantly, it became an incredible tool for lawmakers to distract from their terrible lockdown policies. Uh, If cases are going up, you're not masking hard enough. If cases are going down, thank you for masking, right? And and so now we're at this place where the CDC and Fauci are recommending two masks. Now, if you stop and think about that, that is a stark admission that one mask isn't cutting it. And that's pretty clear. Studies have shown from polls that 90% of America is really masking up uh, and it has little to no effect This is something that learned 100 years ago during the 1917-18 pandemic after they did studies and they found out that a public utility of masking, especially with our cheap masks, our cloth masks are really futile. Well, and I want to another chart that you put out was looking at Los Angeles again compared to Florida. Florida has been much more open. You have this chart here looking at all of these mandates, the indoor mask mandate, outdoor mask mandate, closed indoor dining, stay-at-home order, closed outdoor dining, curfews, all imposed in Florida, uh, sorry, in California. And specifically, you were looking at Los Angeles. And you pointed out with this chart and you you charted what was happening in Los Angeles against what was happening in Florida. And you found there was actually lower daily new deaths per 1 million in Florida compared to Los Angeles, despite Los Angeles having so much higher controls in place. But to be fair, is this because of what's happening because Los Angeles just is more dense and also Los Angeles has uh, a more urban population? Uh, Actually, uh, Los Angeles is not a terribly dense place compared to other urban areas. Uh, The density of Manhattan is about five to ten times more dense than Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a huge place. Uh, And we found that density is not a a strong correlation uh, for the rise in cases. What we do find is that when you look at California and you look at its neighbors, Nevada and Arizona, their curves of the virus go exactly the same, which tells you that there's something more in the weather or something in the air that makes the virus go, and that a man's puny mask might as well be used to stop the Mississippi River. Uh, Stick your hand into this river of lava and try to stop it. It just doesn't work. Now, unfortunately, masks are kind of a third rail topic. When you touch them, it it seems to derail every conversation you have. Uh, But we just base ourselves on the science. We base it on the evidence that we see. And there is very little evidence to support public masking. Uh, And I think other things are at play here. And it's evident that if you look at Disney World versus Disneyland, shut down for all eternity, it seems, uh, there's no basis for what California is doing. I'm here in San Diego. We've been masked up since March. Everyone wear masks. I wear masks because I'm not a jerk. But in the end, uh, it it really is futile to to stem the the curb of this virus. We should have spent our energy protecting those who are most vulnerable, uh, the elderly among us. Okay, so I want to go back then to what you just said, uh, back to the Florida chart when you're looking at the Florida counties, because 
this since you guys crunched these numbers here and you again you found that the counties with no mask mandate had lower new cases than the counties that had a mask mandate again are you saying that the three counties did you control for density did you control maybe these three counties? I don't know which ones they were. Were they they're more urban? Are they more dense? And did you control for that to say it doesn't matter if you're living in a maybe a, a more spread out place where it's more rural, that it doesn't matter? Did you control for that? Uh, we controlled for a lot of efforts. In fact, we did this same study across the entire country, looking at counties that had mandates and counties that did not. And we found on average that the counties that did have mandates fared far worse. Uh, now, look, uh, again, I'm not going to say that masks are causing the virus or exacerbating it, uh, but I will absolutely make the assertion that there is zero evidence that masks help in any significant way to stem the, the curve of the virus. I, and in fact, my main brunt, my main complaint against masks is that they become a distracting tool for elected and unelected health directors who make the case that if you're seeing the cases go up, you're not masking hard enough, uh, and it becomes something that they can do to distract from the terrible, awful lockdown policies. Just take one stat, for instance. Uh, one university study estimates that we have missed about 250,000 cases of child abuse uh, over the lockdowns. Why? Because most child abuse is discovered at school. Wow. Wow. That's, that's uh, just tragic. Um, we're going to have to talk about that more uh, later on, but I, I want to move to another topic, and that's the issue of climate change, which I know you have a lot of thoughts about, and specifically John Kerry, who is President Biden's new climate envoy, a very special word title there, fancy title, envoy. Um, he says that the people who were working in the oil industry, they need to make better choices, better life choices uh, on if they lose their job or not. If they lose their job because Biden shut down the Keystone Pipeline, that's just their fault for making a bad choice. Yet John Kerry himself, he flies in private jets. He owned a 76-foot yacht and several mansions. He has the carbon footprint of a small nation, according to Senator Tom Cotton, who tweeted that out. Yet he tells energy workers to make solar panels when the Biden administration kills their jobs. And you tweeted out, you replied, and you said, rules are for the not for me. Why do you think John Kerry continues to be able to get away with this when his own carbon footprint is massive? Well, his friends get away with it. The people at Davos get away for it. Uh, the media lets him get away with it uh, because they're very much on board. Uh, they're actually very similar issues that we face uh, in the fight against COVID lockdowns, uh, as in the fight to understand what's happening with climate change. That is a lot of data manipulation, uh, a lot of issues that become policies that impact people in dramatic ways. We better hope that the petroleum and oil industry stays intact because every point of the system which delivers your vaccines has some element of petrol in it, whether it's the development of the needles, uh, the gas that's used to store the vaccines. Uh, no electricity is going to reproduce those elements right now or any time in the right. future. Right. So Justin, if you make Justin, that more we got to leave it right there. Uh, Sorry, we got to take a quick break. Thank you so much, Justin. He's always got that rational perspective. All right, we'll be right back. 
Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad that you're here with us. So the new White House, the new Congress, it's raising a lot of questions about the future of gun rights in America. And I have an expert here who's going to walk us through what's happening. Her name's Antonia Okafor Cover. She's a spokesperson for the Gun Owners of America. Good morning, Antonia. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So our latest that we've been reporting here at Just the News is a look at what happened with airlines. So without any warning, they suddenly banned flying with a locked firearm. The stranded passengers and it sparked gun rights concerns. Uh, Mark Olivia, who is the National Shooting Sports Foundation Director of Public Affairs, said the airlines have been the recipients of taxpayer funds and are now limiting taxpayers from traveling with a firearm. Olivia, who is a Marine Corps veteran, stressed that he never wants to see anything like what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, but he also does not want citizens to be treated like a safety or criminal concern when they have been following the law. And I think that's an important point, that when you treat law-abiding gun owners like criminals, the criminals actually end up slipping through the cracks, at least from what we've seen. Is this right? Absolutely it is. And the fact of the matter is, is that they are just trying to target gun owners in this instance because it's easy for them. Um, being uh, Banning essentially uh, those from being able to transport their firearm from one place to another is just, um, not only is it unconstitutional, it's keeping us from keeping and bearing arms, right? Um, but it's also just doing something that should be what you have to do when you are in a car, right? It's the same thing. It's just a different mode of transportation. Um, so it was Delta who started that. Uh, Southwest, I believe, also did that as well. Um, and so th this is just setting a, a horrible precedent going forward. But also it just shows the matter of the fact is that, look, in Virginia, we've had a rally that has tens of thousands of gun owners who come together every year um, on Martin Luther King Day in order to talk about their grievances when it comes to gun rights and gun control. And there's been no incidences in the last two decades. And so it's just absolutely just showing this bias that they have for gun owners in general when we have shown ourselves to be law-abiding, honest citizens year by year. Now, Mark Olivia, who I quoted in, in our article, he said that these taxpayer funds are being used to subsidize airlines, and then the airlines are then in turn banning firearms. What's the legal argument here? Have you guys looked at lawsuits? Are you bringing any legal action to say, hey, look, you might be a private company if you're an airline, but if you're receiving public funds, you cannot restrict Americans' ability under the Constitution to have guns? Yeah, we are absolutely looking at different avenues whenever we can, especially on the legal route. Uh, we're looking at different ways to essentially keep these companies, these big government uh, companies, um, from being um, not held accountable. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, most people didn't even know that this was happening. I actually knew because I was traveling on Southwest this last weekend um, to actually shoot something in Vegas and I wasn't able to transport my firearms. And so um, it was Delta that I think most people knew about, but there are other companies as well that were doing this. And look, this is just something that's gonna continue unless we have people like Gunners of America and their two million activists on board telling them that we're watching you, not only our politicians and elected officials, but the elected officials that benefit uh, these big businesses as well. Right, and, and, the, and the very big distinction between a few criminals who assaulted the Capitol and millions of law-abiding gun owners couldn't be different, more night and day. But I wanna talk about another issue, and that was something we've been reporting about gun buying activity. So in 2020, we saw 
record gun sales. This is in the middle of the riots, the lockdowns, the presidential election. Uh, November was the busy, busiest on record for FBI background checks. According to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, the background checks were up 40 percent from the prior November with more than 3.6 million checks performed throughout the month. This is something do you expect we're going to keep this momentum that more people are going to want to buy firearms in 2021? And when you have restrictive policies who are wanting to restrict the carrying of these firearms, isn't this on a collision course? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that when they try to implement these laws and these policies like they did in COVID very, very rapidly, right after um, a lot of these lockdowns state by state were issued, um, people were going out to in a rush, going out to gun stores, gun ranges and getting firearms and ammunition. And now, uh, man, if you can find some 556 ammo or any AR ammo, uh, please, first of all, let me know because I can't find any um, here in Texas. But uh, it's been ridiculous. But it just shows how many people realize that why, this is why the Second Amendment exists is for instances like this where we are having to protect ourselves. There are sheriffs who are saying, look, we are at capacity and we don't see some crimes as essential. Um, so you're going to have to take care of yourself. And so people. Wow. Well, and Antonia, I want to ask about that specifically, because members of Congress, more than 30 members of the House have written and said, we want more security. We're afraid. We're scared. We are new targets, especially because of what happened on January 6th. And so they're asking for more government taxpayer money to protect them. Presumably, this would be people with firearms, police with firearms. So is this an instance of protect uh, and us, but leave you exposed? Oh, it definitely shows the hypocrisy um, that we see in many uh, with many politicians on Capitol Hill of that, uh, you know, we can't have the ARs and, and, and et cetera. But of course they can because, you know, they need protection and they're very important people. Um, look, at the end of the day that they are there in Washington because of the people and um, we have to have our rights protected. And that's actually their only job. Very easy. They should do it. All right. Antonia, you're just making way too much sense. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us. That's Antonia. She's a spokesperson for the Gun Owners of America. Uh, yes, the little people. You don't need your guns. The big people, they get it. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you're here with us. Well, I want to bring in a financial expert. He is a specialist in all things macroeconomics, Mitch Rochelle. Uh, first time on the show. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Carrie. Thanks for having me. So you're not a shy wallflower by any stretch, uh, and you tweet out quite a bit uh, that our viewers should check out at Mitch Rochelle. And you pointed out uh, you have strong feelings. Daniel Perino over at Fox News tweeted out, Biden's climate policies are destructive to the American economy. This is according to the West Virginia Attorney General. And you replied and you said, agreed, there's more to the climate discussion than we're hearing from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. How about we unify by hearing multiple voices versus lawmaking by fiat. It was interesting. I was listening on the radio this morning. NPR, I was actually pleasantly surprised. NPR had someone out in Wyoming and they were talking to someone who was going to have their job affected by 
Biden's orders on climate and Biden's orders on destroying the oil and gas industry. So they did have at least one voice, but this is one radio station uh, versus having the president of the United States actually listen to the people who are going to be affected by this. And I want to get your take on the labor unions in particular, because the labor unions, uh, three of them, three of them who came out in support of Joe Biden during the campaign, they have now expressed dissatisfaction. They say they're angry about what Joe Biden did with Keystone, because that's already thousands of union jobs that are going to be destroyed by just the stroke of Joe Biden's pen. Do you think labor unions are going to be the Achilles heel for Joe Biden? Uh, Yeah, Carrie. And I think Democrats, for as long as there have been labor unions, have been cozied up with the senators and congressmen and certainly the occupants of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But the reality is workers are feel disenfranchised. And in fact, one of the reasons why President Trump did so well four years ago is because I think he spoke to those people who felt ignored by their unions and certainly by their elected officials. So the reality is we're going to lose 11,000 jobs or so because of the cancellation with the stroke of a pen of the Keystone XL pipeline. But the reality is that's for the sake of the environment. How are we going to get that oil to people? We're going to put it on trucks that burn fossil fuel or we'll put it on rails that could derail and spill all over the place. We certainly hope that doesn't happen. So I, I, I can't figure out other than doing something impactful in the first, you know, three days in office. I don't get why we're canceling Keystone XL pipeline. One other thing is, you know, our neighbors to the north aren't thrilled with it. So if one of the goals of the administration is to reignite relationships around the world, well, we certainly haven't done well with our neighbor to the Well, we know who's going to benefit from this. Uh, Vladimir Putin. He's going to have a a stronger market access by restricting American oil producers. Vladimir Putin's going to be happy about that, as well as the Saudis, uh, who the Democrats say that uh, we've been in their back pocket and they've been upset about the strong ties between the Trump presidency and the Saudis. Uh, And yet, by uh, restricting American producers, that's going to help the Saudis, which the Democrats say that they, uh, they want to be more circumspect. They want to they want to tie back this relationship, dial it down, but they're going to be in the end actually helping the Saudis. Who do you think also should be brought into this conversation? Who else is missing on this conversation about energy? I, I think it's workers and I think it's the, the, the private sector in terms of business. I think one of the things that the Trump administration did very effectively, I think he left the door open to, you know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for business leaders and constantly had roundtables with the private sector. If you look at the vaccines, Operation Warp Speed is probably the greatest public-private partnership of all time. And I think you need to listen to business, not on social justice issues, but I think you need to listen to business leaders and how important low energy prices are to our economy, to their businesses, whether or not windmills are going to be able to be used for industrial production. I think you really need to listen to business And I don't think they have a voice right now. All right, let's turn to another topic, and that is the COVID-19 shutdown. So my colleague Daniel Payne looked at the fact that Democrat governors have been signaling 
post-Trump shift to less harsh COVID-19 restrictions. These hardline governors are relaxing some of the rules in the first week of the Biden presidency, even as the virus case levels remain elevated. Do you think there's an element of politics here? Are these Democrat governors, are they doing this because Trump lost and now they want to open up the floodgates and be seen, the Democrats, as, as more accommodating and, and more beneficial? Well, how about my governor, Governor Cuomo's tweet within minutes of uh, the Biden administration saying we have to open up the economy in the state of New York because we can't afford to keep it closed. That was a head scratcher. You know, the fact of the matter is, listen, there's two sides to the economy. There's the supply side, which is you know, what people consume. And then there's the demand side, which is their means of consumption. Okay, so right now we have one point four trillion dollars worth of excess saved money because people cannot consume the the favorite thing to do in America on a Friday night is to go to dinner and a movie. And you cannot do that. So I think um, politicizing this is what got us in the trouble that we are in. And now miraculously, Democrat governors and mayors are thinking you need to open up the economy. It's interesting it's that you mentioned uh, movies because the AMC stock was able to be uh, just pumped up uh, because of Reddit and a lot of hedge funds lost a lot of money. Were you surprised by that real quick? No, I listen, this is the strangest thing ever. And I'll, I'll say this real quickly. Fact of the matter is we couldn't bet on sports months because sports were shut down. But people started betting on stocks instead of, uh, you know, sports. And I think there's a brand new culture of day traders. I'm not a fan of it. Not good for the capital markets. All right, Mitch Rochelle, appreciate it. Thanks so much. You bet, Karen. And we'll be right back, folks. Stay tuned. Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you're here with us. I want to make sure that you know about at 6 p.m. tonight, we are going to have a special called Hold the Line, hosted by our founder, John Solomon. It's a look at how to rebuild, renew, and resurge our country. It's with Heritage Action for America. And Jessica Anders from Heritage Action will be joining, as well as Senator Ted Cruz. And we know Senator Cruz. He does not like to hold back. So make sure you tune in here on Real America's Voice to check out this special about what is the conservative movement going to do moving forward. I also want to end the show here with you looking at just the double standard, which we all know, and it's so glaringly apparent. This time it's a Vox Media. Vox Media, a very liberal place, looking at the difference between how they reported about the Trump administration versus the Biden administration wearing masks or not wearing masks. And it turns out that the press had a conniption fit when there were some members of the Trump staff, Trump and his staff's refusal to wear a face mask is a catastrophe. Yet then, flash forward under Biden, no meltdowns. Jen Psaki's first briefing as Biden, Biden's press secretary was a breath of fresh air. Turns out, as Alison Weisenberger points out, that the press response to Trump not wearing a mask versus no response to Biden not wearing a mask, and Biden's family, by the way, they were not wearing masks during the inauguration. Huh. Vox, you couldn't be more hypocritical here in your headlines in the way you're covering these two administrations. If you're a journalist, you're here to ask hard questions no matter who's in the White House. All right, that does it for us here. Stay tuned for War Room coming up next. <laughs> 